thanks for the warm welcome, everybody. Um, yeah, I have a friend I know, uh, Charles Kim, if any of you know him. He's the one that reached out and invited me and got connected. And it was kind of fun because I know him through serving in the National Guard as a chaplain. Uh, but he invited me and he gave me the address and I was like, oh, whoa, I'm kind of excited because one, like I, my wife graduated from the University of Minnesota. And so we had that little connection, but then through Army, I did Army at the Armory building. And it's connected to the field house, if you've seen it. So it's really just down the street off university here. And so it was kind of fun. I got to relive some memories. But uh, then he started explaining to me, he's like, yeah, we're, we're a predominantly Asian church. And I was like, uh, Chaplain Kim. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, come. We're, we're excited to have you. And it reminded me a little bit, uh, I have a friend from India who attends my home church and he moved several years ago. And when he got there, it's fun because we were able to greet each other and actually have a really fulfilling conversation. And I thought about it afterwards and I'm like, you know, it's amazing because we literally grew up on opposite ends of the world and our culture would say, you have nothing in common. And yet here are two people who have nothing in common and yet the first time they meet each other can have a rich, fulfilling conversation. And why is that? Well, because we share something very deep in our belief of Jesus. And so it's amazing that Jesus bridges that gap. And so uh, I thought of that friendship I had and hope that that uh, is somewhat what we experience here this morning. But I started thinking through, uh, Chaplain Kim had mentioned to me like, hey, it's a really young audience for the most part. And I was like, okay. And I started thinking through, he gave me a little bit of liberties and what to talk about this morning. And so I'm taking those liberties and I was thinking through what it was like in my 20s as I was going through and the conversations I would have with people as a Christian. Well, it turns out as a young adult, it's not popular to be a Christian. Turns out that when you have conversations with people, it's not something that they get super excited about. But when you have those conversations, when you start asking people, hey, do you have a faith background? Do you believe in God? Why or why not? There's typically one objection that is most common. Something that people keep raising again and again and again. And it's a topic that if you haven't wrestled through and come to a conclusion on, it can, left, it can leave you wondering. I met somebody who was wrestling with that objection several years ago. I had a friend, they invited me out to dinner with a group of people, and some of the people there, it was a couple that I didn't know, and we're just sharing life updates, having a good time, and this woman and the couple, uh, you know, I start sharing something along the lines, now, I never do this, but I came out that I was a pastor. I never like to tell people I'm a pastor because as soon as I do, oh, sorry, watch my mouth, and they, you know, apologize for something in the conversation. I'm like, no, just be yourself. So I normally don't like to tell people, but somehow it came out in the conversation, oh, Noah's a pastor. And instead of like the oh, apologetic, I kind of got this like eye roll. Like, hmm, that's odd. Well, as the conversation went on, uh, we started sharing more, and I must have said something along the lines of, hmm, I'm really thankful for what God has been doing in my life. She responds, yeah, I used to believe in that stuff too. Whoa, and she said it in a way that made me feel as if, like, should I be embarrassed or am I naive for believing in something like this? I started thinking about it a little bit more, and I couldn't help but be like, hmm, okay, well, 
hey, it sounds like you have a little bit of a background in it. She's like, yeah, well, I grew up going to church. You know, like I went and I sung and I read the Bible and all those things, but now that I'm older, I'm in the real world. Wow. I'm like, okay, well, what, what led you to that conclusion? And little did I know that I was walking into a landmine. My brother, he died. Cancer. He said, when my brother got cancer, we went and we prayed. Then we went to the priest. We prayed some more. Then we prayed and then we fasted and then we prayed. You know what? My brother's still dead. That's what's real. This objection that she was raising was deep. I could sense that in her. But there was a part of me that wanted to respond, and a little bit of a cynic in me that goes, people die every single day. So you're telling me that as you're growing up, you're willing to believe in God so long as it was somebody else who was having a hard time, somebody else who was struggling. And did God just maybe not love them enough? Did they just not pray hard enough? What made you think that when it would come your time that your story would be different? You were willing to believe in God. But now you can imagine how well do you think that conversation would have gone had I said those things? Probably not very well. But you realize that there was something de like deeper that she was wrestling with. She's wrestling with this idea that I tried to place my faith in God. And at the end of the day, when I did that, when I prayed, he wasn't there. It's this problem of evil. That's what we're wrestling with today. And she had this deep-seated frustration over how is it that there could be a God who says that he loves us, there could be a good God, and yet this world is filled with tragedy and evil and suffering and pain. And why does it matter if I have this faith in him if at the end of the day when I reach out, he's not there? How do I reconcile this? Well, my journey into this problem of evil, I met somebody else who was really wrestling with it, and I completely written off. It was interesting. I was 22 years old, fresh graduate, uh, and I had just commissioned into the Minnesota Army National Guard. And the unit that I was in, we were about to go on our annual training out Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, about two and a half hour drive from the Twin Cities. And we were trying to decide who was going to ride with who, and they decided I was going to ride with the company first sergeant. Well, to give you a little bit of perspective, the company first sergeant had been in the Army longer than I had been alive. Right, I've been on multiple deployments, he was a seasoned veteran, and here I was, very well, fresh. So it's gonna make for an interesting two and a half hour ride. I can't say I was necessarily looking forward to it, but as we're on this ride, uh, we're driving along, and I, of course, ask the question, hey, what kind of faith background do you have? And you kind of see him, he gets a little smirk on his face, and he's like, Lieutenant, I've been around too long and seen too many things to believe in that kind of stuff. Hmm. I'm like, you're telling me that in your whole life you haven't even considered, like, could there possibly be a God? What would that mean for you? And then it gets silent. He looks over. Listen, you go on multiple deployments to Afghanistan. You see children being used as suicide bombers. You smell burning flesh. You see body parts on the side of the road and parents going to pick them up. And you tell me 
that there's a God. You know, when I see this problem, this challenge to, can there be a God in this problem of evil? It's one that theologians have wrestled with for a long time. But very rarely is it a conversation that doesn't carry any baggage. Very rarely is it just a conversation, hey, let's dialogue about this. No. Normally there's something deep, something that's weighing, something that somebody has experienced that they had and they brought to the Lord and were devastated. Normally it's very, very personal. And what happens is, is believers eventually we turn to this guy and we look at him and sometimes we don't always get that answer we're looking for. And it gives a chance for the world to scoff. I wanted to share a quote with you. This is from Andrew Cuomo. He is, or was, I should say, the governor of New York. I remember he was holding a press conference in 2020 and it was pretty early on in the pandemic. And he's there and he's uh, talking about COVID cases in an attempt to bring them down. And he has this quote, it says, the number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. That's how it works. It's math. It's amazing because he said it in a way that kind of left you wondering, well, people can do this but God's not going to. People will take action, but God isn't going to. It's tough as a Christian going through these challenges of asking, where is my God in times of suffering and pain? And you'll have someone who sometimes might come up to you and they're trying to encourage you. They see that you're going through this journey and they might share with you Romans 8.28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And they mean it well, right? They, they mean to be encouraging you. And they're not wrong in saying, let's look to the future. Let's see that God could potentially work this for good. But in those moments, when they start sharing that with you, it doesn't solve the problem of the right here, right now. I'm in the hospital, and I have this tumor, and it's still growing. I'm praying, and I'm praying. And you might tell me that something good might come out of this, but right now, it's not answering my problem. Right now it looks like I'm still going to die. Where is God in this moment? I'm not saying that that verse isn't relevant. It's not meaningful and it's not true. But I'm saying in those moments when you are wrestling through, what do I make of this right now? It's hard to hear from somebody else. I started on another road trip with some pastors. If you've learned anything from this so far, it's that if you're on a road trip with a pastor, it can get dangerous because they might ask you questions. <laughs> but I'm on a road trip with some of these pastors, and this conversation comes up, and I'm like, man, how do you talk to someone? How do you encourage them, someone who's going through this wrestling of, can there be a God in all this evil in the world? And they're going through tragedy. We start talking, and we come across this verse. One of them says, I often share Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us. And the pastor's point was is that 
though there are things going on and God is high above, we may not be able to understand everything. Our brains may not be able to fully comprehend everything that's going on. That's why it says the concealed things belong to the Lord, the secret things. But even in your situation, if God was potentially explain everything to you about what is going on, you still may not be able to fully understand it. And that we as Christians can still trust our God through this process. I want to ask you a question because it started getting my brain going around this. And the question is, is what would you do if you were God for a day? I, I like to entertain that idea. Like, what would I do if I was God for the day? Maybe you've watched shows like Russo Mighty. Maybe you're uh, part of the Marvel Universe and you've seen the superhero and your brain's starting to go a little bit. And you're like, what would I do if I had unlimited power for 24 hours? Well, the thought comes to me of, hmm, what if I just healed Every sickness and every disease, just like that. I can imagine the families that would be going home. They'd be excited, there would be cheer, there'd be excitement, it'd make the news, and it would be wonderful. And the first 24 hours would be absolutely unthinkable. So many people would be rejoicing. But then the next day, something would happen. Millions of people who work in the healthcare field would realize that they no longer have a job, <laughs> that their careers are completely destroyed, that they've put all this effort into. Now, it could go even further to say those people who do work in healthcare, like they're filled with this empathy and this compassion, right? And in this empathy and compassion, they don't just use that at work, but they take it home with them, right? They share it with their home, their community, their schools. We all benefit by having these people in our community. To lose that would be a, tragedy, a tragedy, tragedy in itself. Now, am I saying that's why God lets pain and suffering happen? Absolutely not. What I am saying, though, is I'm saying that even from my human scope, just a little bit of my limited view, I can see that there's more that's going on than just the surface of just wanting to simply heal everybody. And so with that, I can wrestle with God, and I also start to ask the question of, is why really what I'm wrestling with? As I go through something that's challenging, all of us deal with it at different times, right? Whether it's, hey, I just graduated, I'm looking for a job, and I'm putting an application again and again and again, and I'm not getting accepted. Whether it's, hey, I have a sickness, and it doesn't seem to be healed. My car keeps breaking down. I have unmet, unpaid medical bills. I'm trying to figure these things out. All of us wrestle with this problem at some point. We start asking that question. But I don't know if what we're really asking is the why. If my dad passed, per se, and I started asking God, why, why? No matter what answer he possibly gave me, do you think I would ever be satisfied with it? Probably not. I don't think the why question is the question that we're really asking. I think the question we're asking really is, where, God? Where are you in this mix? As a chaplain with the National Guard, I'm exposed to a lot of different faith backgrounds. Doesn't mean I'm an expert in any of them, but it does mean I'm exposed to them. And when I started getting to this question of, where are you, God? I couldn't help but take a step back and start looking around, viewing other religions and being like, hmm, is there possibly a God out there 
that has given an answer to this problem of pain and suffering, of all this evil in the world? Is there a God out there who might possibly give an answer and know what it's like? I started looking around, and the closest I could find is, well, there was a God, or gods, if you will, who maybe from their throne in heaven, all comfortable, could reach out and grant the request of those who believe in them. But that's as close as I got. And I started asking the question, is there actually anybody, is there actually a God who knows what it's like to experience this evil in the world? Is there actually a God who not just granting a wish, but that has an answer to where he is in all of this? Now, some of you, you can see where I'm going, right? Your brain's starting to go, and the answer seems so obvious to you. But when you are on this journey of suffering, the answer is not easy. It is foggy, and it is not right in front of you. It took me a long time to find this answer, if you will. I was working as a hospital chaplain, and I was down living in the city of Dallas. I worked at this big medical uh, building. It was called Medical City, and I call it the, um, like the Mall of America of hospitals because it was so big. But in it, um, I remember going, and you know, I, every day I'd go and I'd visit patients, but one day I walk into a room, knock on the door, hey, chaplain here, is now a good time for me to visit? Yes, come on in. And I go down, and I'm walking into the room, and I see a man. He's sitting on the edge of his bed, and in this bed sits his seven-year-old son. And I come up to him, and I'm like, sir, what, um, what brings you here? Why are you guys here today? He looks at me, and he says, today the doctors came in. My son has cancer. Problem is, we've known that he's had cancer, but it's spreading. And it doesn't look like there's anything that they're going to be able to do about it. The doctor said that he has roughly two months to live. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at him. I just wanted to weep with him. It's just terrible. He looks at me and he's. Is there anybody who knows what this is like? My son is innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's so young. He hasn't done anything to deserve this. Does anybody know what it's like to watch your son die? And that's finally when the light bulb clicked. That there is a God. That there is a God who, instead of just sitting on his throne, watching from afar, decided there is evil in this world. There's this great sin, and it's destroying the relationships among people, the relationships amongst them and God, and it is bringing death. And I am willing to get off my throne and give an answer. That God, his name is Jesus. And what's amazing about this God-man, Jesus, is that in this world, of pain and suffering, and as I look at all these other gods who are possibly out there, you see each one of them, people would need, and in order to get an answered prayer, what do you do? You have to work for it. You have to please this God, and maybe, possibly, he might answer you. But not this God, Jesus. He looks down, he sees the pain and the evil and the suffering in this world, and though the world is in revolt against him, what does he do? 
though nobody earned it, nobody deserved it, he leaves his comfortable throne in heaven and he comes down to earth and he makes himself known. What other God is there that you can touch, that you can see, that you could hear? He came off the throne of comfort and came so that way he could be hurt. He could be wounded, and dare I say, even killed. I have a passage from Scripture that uh, what I did is I assembled from the Gospels, uh, basically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I put them together into a succinct story of what it was that Jesus experienced when he came to earth. And so I just wanted to read that to you now. It starts off, Then the governor's soldiers led him away to crucify him. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God? Let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Those of you who are familiar with the account of the crucifixion know that I've left out a couple things. I haven't included the beatings, the floggings, the whippings, nor the nails in his hands and his feet. I start thinking about this, and I'm like, I can't imagine what it would be like to see anybody go through this. But to see your own son, unbelievable. You can only begin what it was like to be God, watching his son, Jesus, there on the cross. Well, as I sat there in that hospital room with that man looking over his son, thought about sharing parts of Jesus' story here in the Gospels, but there actually was a verse, a passage really, that I thought was much, much deeper, that I thought would hit the point home even further. It's one that talks about who Jesus is and what the crucifixion was like from Jesus' vantage point, what it was like to experience the crucifixion. Now, I want to encourage you before we go and we read this passage, our world today it mocks Christians. It scoffs. When you mention the word faith, it's quickly written off. Why is that? Well, today our world would define faith as what? Largely wishful thinking. Something that you can't prove to be true, but you want to be true, therefore you think it is true. That's how our world would define faith. It's simply childish, naive, wishful thinking. But the Bible actually has a very different definition of faith. You see, in 1 Peter 3.15, it gives a verse that says, Always be ready to give a defense to anybody who asks you for the hope that is in you. Hmm. Always be ready to give a defense and to have reasons. Not wishful thinking, but reasons as to why. Friends, one of the reasons that I believe in Jesus is because what we're about to read was written about a thousand years before Jesus came. It's a psalm written by King David, almost a thousand years before 
before Jesus came to earth, this psalm was written about him. David, King David, is writing this psalm. And as he's writing it, David is expressing what he's feeling. But little did he know that in his sense of tragedy and what he was writing, he was actually writing the future. He was writing prophecy over what would happen to Jesus. The passage I'm talking to you is in Psalm 22. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there. Uh, I'm specifically going to read from the NIV. Some of you are familiar with the ESV. I love the ESV. This comes from the NIV. So this is Psalm 22. And as we go through it, I hope that what you get a chance to see is a God who understands what it's like to walk through pain and suffering. Verses 1 through 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Jesus' literal last words on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And take in mind, like, these thoughts of, My God, my God, it's not just a random statement of just somebody, a God. No, he's reaching out to his father, somebody who knew him intimately. He's saying this relationship is personal. This isn't just a theological discussion. My God, I'm leaning on you in this moment. I think about him in the garden the night before, praying, God, if there's any other possible way. And yet here he finds himself on the cross. Verses 4 and 5. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. It's almost like saying, you saved others. How come you won't save me? One of the hardest things in life is experiencing something unfair. Hey, we have the same GPA. We just graduated. How come they got the job and I didn't? Man, I've been praying and I want to be married. And I find myself still single, but my friends, they keep getting married. And we've been trying to have a kid. The kids never come. Why is that? This feeling of unfair, this feeling of other people prayed and they got answers. Jesus in the garden, if there's any other way, how come me? Jumping to verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. These are people mocking Jesus. I imagine Jesus there, his hands pinned to the cross, knows that he's going to be there until his last breath. But so does the enemy. They see him up there, and knowing that his fate is pretty much sealed, instead of letting him die in a silent moment of peace, what do they do? Well, they come up and gloat. Hmm, aren't you the guy that could give sight to the blind? That could make the lame walk? Aren't you the guy that brought Lazarus out of the grave? You could heal other people, but you can't heal yourself. You said you're the son of God. If he loves you, why isn't he helping you? The enemy is taking this moment to gloat. And as Christians, when you share your faith with others and they look at your life and they're like, hmm, you're a Christian and yet your life doesn't look perfect. Interesting. And how it, it feels. Jumping to verse 9. 
you who brought me out of the womb. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Again, this is a personal prayer. Jesus is going, my whole life was orchestrated by you. Who I was going to be born through, Mary. Where I was going to be born. The places that I would travel to, the disciple. Everything was written, and here I am still, God, in this moment of frustration, hearing on the cross, hanging there, asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guys, your lives aren't an accident. From Scripture, we know that he knows you by name. He's counted the number of hairs in your head. You have an intimate God who knows you. Your life isn't an accident. And yet we can feel like Jesus here, still asking that question. I'm going to jump further. This is verses 13 through 15. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. There's a painting that I've seen, and I can't get it out of my head. It's burned into my eyes almost. It's that of a Roman Colosseum. Shortly after Christianity spread into Rome, they had these Colosseums. And what they would do is they take captured Christians, and they would chain them up to a post. And then, with everyone watching for entertainment purposes, they would release wild animals, like lions, tigers, bears, yes, you know. They would come and devour these Christians. I can only imagine what it's like to be tied to a post. Seeing the lion come at me, open its mouth, sink its teeth in my flesh, and know that I would be alive until it finished tearing me apart. The only thing I can imagine being even close to that is maybe a whip with the ends of it having metal and glass slowly being brought across my back until my flesh is slain. It says that his mouth is dried. It is like a pot sheared, very dry. You can think of clay stuck to the top of his mouth. Jesus in the story I read to you says, I'm thirsty. With that amount of loss of blood, you get thirsty, you stick. Here he is fulfilling this prophecy. In verses 16 through 18, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People share and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, fulfilling these prophecies of what was to come. Dogs in Israel... We're not like your house dogs that you think of today. Rather, they were more of like scavengers. They were things that would go find dead things in the street and pick away off of what was left. And in the same way, now you have guards. Seeing Jesus on the cross, considering him as good as dead, basically are picking at the scraps. Just like dogs, they're picking the scraps, they're throwing, casting lots for what's left in his garment. And then lastly, verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Guys, in our times of suffering, in our times of pain, and wrestling with this great problem of, can there be a good God in so much evil in this world? When we have these personal prayers, we can often feel like Jesus there on the cross, wondering, where is my God, and can he possibly save me? 
where is he in these moments? It's interesting because I think about Jesus' disciples. They had put all their faith in this one guy, Jesus. And through it, they're journeying. They're seeing him heal people. They're seeing him feed thousands. Literally, he can take food and money and make it out of thin air. He is the coming Messiah. He is the one to come that is going to answer all the problems. He is God in the flesh. All their hope was in him. And yet on that day, there he hung on the cross. Their hope seemed dead. That's not the end of the story, is it? It's amazing because Jesus does come back to life, and we know that. But I think from the enemy's perspective, if I'm Satan, if I'm the devil, and I'm trying to end God's plan, I see that Jesus has come down, and he's sharing these stories, what are my options? Well, my options are I can slow him down. That doesn't seem to be working. I've been throwing enemies at him. It doesn't seem to be slowing him down. Jesus is still spreading. So what do I do? I reach into my toolbox and I take the ultimate weapon that should end this once and for all, death. If I just kill Jesus, all hope will be lost and it will be over. But what does Jesus do? He takes this very thing that is supposed to remove all hope, death itself, and he takes what the enemy has meant for evil, and he fashions out of it life. Not just his own life, but life to anybody who would possibly believe in him. My friends, I feel like sometimes we're the disciples, and we put our trust in Jesus. We're like, man, I am a Christian. I followed you. We're just like that girl who grew up in the church. Hey, I've been going to church. I'm singing the songs. I'm reading the Bible. I'm trusting you until it's my own life. Until suddenly my life is thrown into chaos and I'm reaching out to you praying and I'm asking, where are you? My friends, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he's able to do things that no other God can do. When you're engaging people, others outside of these church walls, friends, maybe even in your own heart, and you're wrestling with these problems of evil, you're like, can there possibly be a God in all this evil in the world? Friends, I want you to know something. Out of all the gods that are out there, there's only one that cared enough to come. There's only one God that came in the flesh that said, I want you to see, touch, feel. And he came, so that was we might know, he came and answered. But friends, he came and he gave and he paid a price that was so high it cost him his own life. This isn't a God who just answered the problem of evil by saying, I'm here. He lived it. He experienced what you're experiencing. As we see him hanging on the cross, he's asking the questions that you're asking. Have you ever been with a friend in a time of tragedy, your tragedy, and they try to comfort you, they pat you on the back, and you're like, ah, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, you got this. And they're really completely unaware of actually what's going on. It's like somebody whose their life looks completely perfect and they come to you and they see you and they're like, yeah, they're there. How's it feel? Feels awful. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what this is to wake up every day again and again and not want to wake out of bed. Jesus, he knows. You ever had that other friend who comes and still unaware of the situation is like, I'm sure things are going to work out. I'm sure things will be fine, but they're completely naive to let's say, a corporate workplace and the structure and what it's like with your relationship and your boss and you think that a firing is an inevitable. 
Friends, Jesus isn't unaware of what it's like to feel pain and suffering. He came and he answered. He has the power to answer these things, but he knows too. Friends, you have a God who's answered the problem of evil. You're not alone in this journey, and I want you to hear that. So as we think about that today, if you're in that time of suffering, of challenge, friends, look to the one, the author and the perfecter of your faith, the one who's gone before you, who wanted you to know that he knows what it is that you're experiencing. Don't give up. Look to him. Realize that this very situation, he is the one that's taken death, the worst thing possible imaginable, and he's shaped it into life. If there's anybody who you can trust with your future, it's Jesus. And I urge you now, trust in the only God who's answered the problem of evil and has shown that he has the, po- he has the power to answer your life. And friends, would you bow with me in prayer? My God, you are amazing. And I cannot even imagine what it was like to hang there on the cross, to feel the pain of your back up against the wood, to feel the nails to your hands and feet every time you grasp for a breath to have people around you mocking you, saying that your faith wasn't enough. And I thank you that you didn't sit far off on your throne watching as if not to be affected, that you came and you knew what it was like to be a man, to be a person to walk this earth, to see the evil that's in it, God, out of wanting us to put our faith in you and trust, you experienced those things and gave your life. And that we might know that you can answer. And that you want us to know that we can have this relationship with you, that you feel what we feel. God, you're able to take our future and fashion out of it something that we could never imagine. And for us here who are going through a challenge, we have a friend who's been asking us, how can there possibly be a God? Lord, would we let Psalm 22 and what you've experienced be fresh in our minds and our hearts? May we give our futures to you. May we release this grasp of control and trust you as the only God that answers. We ask these things in your name, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.